0: Occasionally interesting Occasionally interesting They
1: are occasionally interesting
2: Alright, thank you guys for attempting to hold your incredibly interesting conversation until there were microphones on um,
0: You're welcome <laughs>
3: I'm not sure how how our viewers really hear about technical aspects of building with
0: bamboo i I find it interesting they
2: were incredibly interesting and also i mean this is a we're having a bamboo builder on the podcast today that's true so they should know what they're in for Um, on today we have holland from holland create is this your official business name
4: uh it's my freelance title nice um but i Prefer to work with like different artist collectives, so I wouldn't say I'm any one business title, uh, but more a network of different people.
2: <laughs> you are a network of different people. Yes. Nice baller <laughs> title. Yeah, that's a truly collaborative artist. Mm.
4: That's how everyone learns more doing art.
2: True. True. Okay, I want to start with a little bit of your background. Uh, so you just you just said off mic that you got your graduate degree in environmental art. Education. Yes. That's amazing. I I can't believe there is such a degree where that's like all of my dreams. Where did you get this degree from?
4: So um, that degree came from Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Nice. Um, It's a very progressive ed center. So they're doing things that are not typically found in the very sterile education system of America right now.
2: And when you applied for this program, what did you have in mind for your career or what were your what were your hopes and dreams? How however did you want to save the world and the people uh, in it?
4: <laughs> well, since I was about seven years old, I told everyone I wanted to be an art teacher. So I never stopped saying that. And then when that time came along, I pushed and to become an art teacher.
2: <laughs> but you wanted this special environmental twist on it. Was this from a passion for the planet or just mediums that you found you enjoyed working with?
4: Well, I was always a painter and a sculptor, Um, so I worked with a lot of natural mediums for a long time. But one of my favorite things to do is go backpacking, spend a lot of time in nature. So when I was quite young, I would spend weeks uh, in the mountains or in the forests with no one around, no cell signal, just my father and I. And then as I got older, I would go out to like Utah, spend time there completely by myself. And it's one of my favorite activities. That's so amazing. So nature kind of came as a direct impact. And then as I took a lot of interest in environmental schools, in, like the Netherlands and in Norway, Sweden, I got very interested in that type of young youth education focused on getting to know your environment rather than getting to know your SAT subjects. Amen. <laughs>
2: You should, you should listen to episode <laughs> 21, I think, with Dan. He, he's a teacher who is still in the U.S. Sw- public school education system, but he's trying to work in tandem with the, how the system is right now to create an alternative school that is running alongside it that's all project-based and multidisciplinary school. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I like to plug our own show
0: in.
2: Yeah, we, we like it. to. Good. Dan, I hope you're doing very well. <laughs> you'd, you'd like him. Um, okay, so then you actually became an art teacher after school?
4: Yeah, so um, before I was an art teacher, I was making art all the time. I was mainly a painter. And then I started teaching art in Baltimore and became quite frustrated with the different barriers of the education system. Either private education where it's really about the children, um, but there's all kinds of hookups with private education, and living in a city can be quite expensive, and private education does not pay as well as public. So then I tried public education, where I really kind of learned kids are price tags um, for the administration. They're not really learners, so it became a very... I just got very frustrated with it and wanted to go find something different.
2: And had you already been attending festivals and stuff like this?
4: So I've been to a few festivals in America, but they're very different in America than the types you find in Southeast Asia. Um, even like even in Costa Rica, they're very different. Um, so it wasn't something I was so drawn to at first, but I did do public art in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a few government projects with some art collectives I was working with there at the time. Yes. We we're making metalworking stuff and inflatables. So, uh, very different, but I had experience with public art and the more I explored festivals, the more I really learned like how direct you're engaging with your audience when you're creating uh, artwork in that environment. Cause you have people, they're there, they have to interact with it and then you get that. And then they come there to interact with the art. So people that come to festivals come with a very different mindset than people walking by on the street.
2: Absolutely.
4: So I got very, very engaged with that kind of environment. Um, and then when you start making those environments, you kind of feel like a puppet a puppet master trying to control the crowd. Totally. How can you like get people to go somewhere, pull them off the typical path, and then it becomes a whole different like level of experimental art. You're creating wonderlands for people.
2: So when you're attending festivals where you build a bunch of structures, are you just like sitting on some high point in the festival watching the cattle roam?
4: Yeah. <laughs> I want to say cattle. <laughs> like, uh like guinea pigs. Guys. <laughs> <Nice. laughs> seeing how they interact. Because that, that always teaches you like what people see and come and experience with the art always teaches you how you can change it or how you can push that feeling somebody had a little bit harder the next time. Mm. and try to create that experience and manipulate it. And that's the uh, the thing that's the hardest about festival work or festival building is you always want to try something completely different. Mm. So it's a constant evolution of different styles. You never really feel like you're sitting in one kind of art form.
2: Are you usually totally design? are you and whatever other artists you're with designing whatever structures you're building for festivals, or is there any like man (laughs) who's asking for things
4: usually there's always usually festivals always have a creative director um so you'd be working with a creative director and they would present like a theme or initiative or um sometimes a myth or a legend um that's the festivals focused on so i really loved the festival here in vietnam's quest festival because it's all about vietnam myths and legends so i spent a lot of time learning about vietnam history that's so um, cool, and that was really interesting. But then there's festivals like Jitep, where there is actually no creative director, um, and they just kind of like, "This is the prompt for that area, or this is our basic theme," and they want the artists to go wild and as crazy as they can be. So there's even there's almost no limitations, which can be scary because limitations breed creativity. Oh, but yeah.
2: Hmm. yeah, those both sound like really interesting. Totally different challenges. Yeah.
3: Is Quest Fest the one that was canceled?
2: Yeah,
4: yeah. Quest Fest. Yeah, we heard Festival. about that. That so was a that was oh. the weirdest experience I think I've ever had.
2: <laughs> what What happened? Tell us.
4: Uh, well, there's a. a lot of things i can and can't say about it so you
2: had already been you were working for quest festival because it got canceled at the last second so you had already built stuff for it yeah
4: i've been working on quest festival for about six months before we found out the day of that it was canceled so we had put in hundreds of hours at that point um and up until the two hours before it was supposed to open we were working like normal I was finishing a hand on a dragon with an artist I got from France who was a good friend of mine. And we we're just like, ah, we just need this hand, this finger to be perfect. And that was our only focus. And then um, no guests arrived two hours in the festival. We we're still like, what's going on? This is weird. Is everything okay? No one's telling us anything. Everyone's just running around, making sure tents are set up, making sure the facilities are all ready to accept s- several thousand guests. And then the night of, they, they, There's still nobody showing up, and we heard the the road was blockaded. We noticed they cut our water, they cut our electricity, um, and we had no food either because all the vendors were supposed to bring us our next um, truckload of food, and so we were stuck without water, without food, and without power for about 24 hours before we started figuring out what was going on. Jesus.
2: That's so intense.
4: (laughs) Wow. So what
3: exactly was going on?
2: That you're allowed to say on air.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And this is the thing um, because I love Vietnam. It is also a communist country. Um, We got to be respectful of how it works here. Uh, And that's one of the harder things because you never know when the rug is going to be pulled out from under you on this kind of stuff. So um, Quest had all its permits. It had everything. It was totally... support of the People's Council, every government office you could go through. Um, But we had some problems with the local cultural village, and they got very scared um, of what it was because they didn't understand it. Uh, It's very common here, if especially the government, if something isn't understood, um, it's better not to let it happen. So as you imagine, a Western-style festival with crazy art installations and um, a bunch of people in costumes and stuff showing up. Uh, the cultural council, though I had been working with Quest for several years, it had some issues um, and got a little bit scared of what the repercussions would be if the festival happened. Um, and this goes to an incident at a, the water park here in Hanoi, and that's the main reason they got scared. Um, there was the largest amount of deaths at any electronic event in history; um, eleven people electronic died. Electronic music, yeah. It's officially classified an e d m event,
2: and when was this
4: um it was about two and a half to three months before the event had happened, mm. and the Vietnamese government, after that incident, they put a ban on all e d m festivals, and Quest was registered as a arts and culture festival, so there was never any like issue or impact yeah um and thought they were totally fine but then um small government got scared, and then they tried to blockade the road, and then it started showing up on the BBC and uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and when the international attention started coming down in just that short amount of time, the bigger government got involved and had to support the smaller government, so yeah. they closed the gates. That's a shame. Yeah, it's a shame.
2: <laughs> Was that what happened to everything you built?
4: Um. Well, the night of, we have no power. Uh, we have no water. We have no food. And we ended up eventually sneaking in enough water to support the people that were there. It was about five, six hundred people there yeah. who were volunteer staff and some people who just walked into the festival because some of them just like, oh, we've been blockaded at a road about five kilometers away, but they can't stop us if we just start walking. So they just walked past all the barriers and around all the security guards and just <laughs> strolled in and we had an- enough gas in a generator and we powered up one stage and everyone had a crazy party for one night and tried to feel better. <laughs>
2: wow.
4: And you can imagine the emotions were quite like varied, intense, and sad. And
1: yeah.
4: Everyone just wanted to activate something.
1: Mm.
4: And the, the stage I built for Quest was the only one that got turned on the whole time. Oh
2: wow. Well that's nice. At least yeah. <laughs> yeah. Silver lining.
4: Yeah. Silver yeah. lining for me. I was very happy yeah. to see that <laughs> some of the directors were very kind to make sure that was the stage that was put on. I felt very very supported because the Quest family was very tight and been working together for like eight eight years almost.
2: Are they on indefinite pause.
4: Well, when you cancel a festival the day of, mm-hmm. um, that is nearly half a million dollars to put on. It's it totally it totally kills it. There's no real event insurance in Hanoi and in, in Vietnam at all. Did they that would cover that kind of loss?
2: Because people pay at the door.
4: Um, so there's pre-sales and tickets, but um. I mean, this is one of the interesting things where I really, I learned a lot about festivals um, from that experience because it really teaches you like all these answers that people I don't tell these questions people have after the event. Like, where did all this money go? Why isn't this happened? Why can't we get these refunds? And when you have festivals like Coachella or like um, Burning Man or boom, or all these really big events that have a lot of outside like money and influence and power and, a lot of like sponsorship funding mm-hmm. they have a, b- a lot more ability to recuperate if something goes wrong but when you have small independent festivals that are predominantly self-funded by the directors um, and by the people involved with it um, the ticket sales make up a very small percentage and quest festival was um, actually says in an article um, it was one of the 100 festivals in the world that year it was the cheap. It the cheapest festival um, of its caliber in the world at the time. Wow! Mm-hmm. Because uh, like Western tickets are only about one point six mil, so not even a hundred dollars. And then the on the gate tickets are much higher. But then Quest gave a lot of discounts to Vietnamese and to students to encourage the local population to come and experience mm-hmm. uh, because it's a very new thing. Where you have a like, Thailand, um, you have festivals like Wonderfruit and even Jai Tep or Uh, color in the park are more established they have that that kind of festival and event are more they're they're seen there they're happening there the thai population understands what it is but in vietnam quest is the first first one doing it to that size and to that style so it was very new thing so the younger generations were really coming to quest but quest really wanted to reach out and get a bigger population um i think one of the festivals in vietnam that Mm -hmm did that recently was dao swan chin festival um up in the north it was put on by this vietnamese artist and it's the first time they ever did the event and they got over three thousand people at the event and over half of them were all locals
3: nice that's, that's awesome
4: yeah and it was all foreign artists um a lot of big vietnamese like installation artists but all the musicians were foreign artists that's so cool and it was yeah it was very impressive You saw a lot of old ladies running around very confused we were like wow
0: this is so crazy
1: looking <laughs>
3: <laughs> but it's to be a lot of fun i mean it's it's always fun to watch people experience that kind of festival for the first time i mean it's especially when the arts spectacular and it's just i mean it's a wonderland it's mhm and to see people experience that and especially like the cultural difference too i mean that's kind of amazing <laughs> to watch <laughs> minds being blown like right? oh.
4: yeah it's really, uh, really cool. The Tao Swan Festival is definitely an interesting one. It was put on by a Vietnamese artist named Dao Kang Kang. Um, and I mean, one of his... F- the, the main thing a lot of people know him for is that he made the biggest linga sculptures in the world. And there's four of them in his valley. And they're like 20 meter tall lingas. Um, and then he's making right now like a 60 meter long yoni.
2: That's in vagina?
4: yeah (laughs) yeah he is a in in his valley just outside of Hanoi. here there is a a a penis sculpture that is about 20 meters tall Uh and it has multiple hotel rooms in it oh wow um and in the the testicle there's a floating bar um that's two stories tall (laughs) i check it out yeah (laughs) sounds good (laughs) but he's an amazing painter um and he does like performance style art so he wanted to throw an event bringing, like, he wanted 10,000 people. Um, and He's thrown events in Hanoi where he's gotten 10,000 people. And the entire event was completely free. So there's no ticket. Anyone could come in. What? Yeah. And so you had everyone start showing up. Mm-hmm. You just had artists from Japan, from all over the world.
0: That's amazing. There's
4: a lot of experimental noise art, um, a lot of crazy performance art. It's everything from a man on top of the on top of the the penis shooting out flares from a <laughs> Pikachu um, death metal Again. band.
2: <laughs> <laughs> pretty incredible combo.
4: Yeah, it was an absolutely bizarre event. Uh, the main stage was a thirty meter long bamboo scaffolding that was four stories high, and the big show of the event they set the whole thing on fire. So you have like these massive installations all over the valley that got lit on fire at the same time and that was just one of them
2: that's a hardcore burn
4: yeah <laughs> wow there are some uh, safety precautions that were thrown out the window but <laughs> nobody got hurt <laughs> i was very happy that no one got hurt
2: yeah i for the most part enjoy the lack of safety precautions in southeast asia yeah <laughs> like
3: you can get a little strangling in the west yeah <laughs>
2: trying to limit you from anything worth experiencing I mean, like every national park or whatever in the U.S. where it's just like a, at every viewpoint there's just fences barricading you in and stuff like that.
4: And there's no more no more merry grounds. What? No more. Yeah, they're they're now like too what? dangerous in the U.S. so They're removing them all.
2: Are you serious? Yeah, you know there's like things
3: that you can like spin on, like but they're like man powered. You have to run and like when you go with one person. It's, they're all being taken down. No, I mean they are dangerous <laughs> as shit, but. We never died. Yeah, it <laughs> was like our twist. That was our favorite thing. So, do festivals make the majority of their money on like concession stands? Then, like,
2: no, don't those go to the concessors?
4: Yeah, I would say <laughs> pretty, pretty much all festivals don't make any money until the doors open.
3: Uh, so, so it's main, mainly ticket sales. It's yeah. just you know selling at the door and
4: yeah, uh, interesting ticket sales and sponsors get you to the first day. Um, and then there's a lot of independent funding. So, like, Quest was very lucky to have sponsorship from Hendrix Gin um, that year. Oh, cool. That really got us even further. And um, the ticket sales pushed us, but then the directors each put in a very large sum that's almost exactly the same as the ticket sales.
2: Oh.
4: Um, and all this investment was <sighs> totally lost. That's so heartbreaking.
2: Wow. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, so, okay. How did you go from. What age group were you teaching in the U.S.?
4: Um, I taught um, first grade to high school.
2: Oh, wow. That's That's a very wide range. uh, So
4: I tried middle school. Uh, I taught all boys Catholic school. Um, But I think middle school was my favorite because all the kids are the the weirdest.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Go on. You have kids
4: that are like in high school and then you have kids that look like they're in the fourth grade. So, you have this crazy hodgepodge of hormones and different developmental levels and it's just total chaos
3: <laughs> what was the most frustrating thing about pu- public or private school or you i guess you worked in both, both so um Pri-
4: public school. <gasps> public school um i mean the education system in america is very financial based mm-hmm. so it's uh, about how can we make money or how can we lower costs as low as possible so a lot of public schools will try to hit certain standards so they can say things or they meet certain programs um, in their school, um, but they're not really wor- willing to spend money to actually represent that. So a lot of things they say don't actually happen in the schools. Hmm. And then when you're the teacher trying to fight for budget or trying to fight for financial support to do, let's say like a clay, like a clay workshop, so you can run the kiln for 120 students that year and do a six-week clay project so you can hit this sculptural standard so the school can say they hit a Montessori level, um, but they're not willing to give you any funding to do that. But yeah. they want you to.
3: Do they get funding based off if they can claim that they've... Or is it more of prestige?
4: It kind of works different. A lot of a lot of them, it's more about the prestige um, and selling a package because mm-hmm. uh, you have the administration trying to get students who are selling... A package that is the school and then you have the teachers working in the school um and they're not the same at all it's a bit a bit heartbreaking in the u.s especially with betsy devos right now just like tearing it apart isn't it a fucking nightmare it is a nightmare
3: (laughs) another reason why we left yeah like oh like of all the people i mean
4: but if people like Dan staying in the U.S. and fighting that battle—you were stronger than me.
3: <laughs> yeah,
4: that's for sure.
0: Uh, even that name just gets me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you go from teaching art in America to picking up everything, moving to Vietnam, and becoming an installation artist slash? What else would you call yourself?
4: <laughs> um. Uh, Multidisciplinary artist, uh, I guess is what I call myself, but it's very hard to explain what I do because as a freelancer, I'm always looking for multiple streams of income, not just one. So I sell fire props um, <laughs> with uh, Gigi and Fred. Nice. Um, but then I also do bamboo structures, um, permanent, temporary. I uh, like to focus on modular tent structures, but my favorite thing is to do installations. So crazy, mind-bending, inspirational, psychedelic environments.
2: <laughs> when you left the U.S. to move to Vietnam, did you have any of these things lined up or was it a blind leap of faith to figure out what would happen once you got here?
4: Um, blind leap of faith. <laughs> I had a good friend um, that I went to school with and um, when I was getting my first degree. and He had moved out here and he was teaching and he really enjoyed the environment. And I worked at a Vietnamese bakery slash cafe um, part-time when I was teaching um, in Baltimore. And my v- Vietnamese bosses there um, urged me to consider coming to Vietnam and said I would really like it. That's so cool. So I that was at the top of my list. And then the more research I did about the art community here and generally in Southeast Asia and how it was... Uh, kind of exploding right now and blossoming and really changing a lot and becoming its really own scene and environment. I was like, that seems like a very good place to go start putting some roots down.
2: So you moved here and then what did it take to get involved with the festival community or like start actually getting hired to do this?
4: Mm, I jumped directly into it. (laughs) How? Uh, The first day I was in Vietnam, I bought a motorbike. Uh, right away nice. so I can go anywhere um, and then the first weekend I was here I went to quest festival oh wow so that's and, an
2: amazing intro to Vietnam
4: yeah <laughs> and learned all about Vietnamese myths and legends uh, that year it was the myth of teach um, sunting and tweeting which is the Vietnamese god of the mountains and tweeting is the god of the ocean and it's about them fighting over the love of a woman <laughs> very common in vietnamese myths to be about love
0: interesting
4: so learned about that um quest at that time was very new they were like they were just starting to get to that point where they could do bigger installations where they could push it a little bit further or where they're starting to get outside sponsorship so they could sponsor installations and after a few weeks in hanoi i mm-hmm. met the creative director of quest um and i Put in some proposals, uh, worked on small events with him and other artists in Hanoi. And since you have a lot of free time in Asia to do your thing while you're also making money as a teacher or doing online work or, I mean, all the different ways people make money here from being yoga teachers to kung fu instructors <laughs> to um, earth earth builders. Like you have so many options. So um I was working about 18 hours a week and I was used to a 40 hour week. So that leaves a lot of free time for you to make whatever you want. So I started making weird dragons, giant heads. Um, the material here is quite cheap. So you can get bamboo for about 20K for a five meter piece. I think that's like 10 cents. <laughs> oh, wow. So if you get 100 pieces of bamboo, you can make something pretty big for not a lot of money. And since I had metalworking and woodworking experience, I just applied it here. I spent time in Korea beforehand um, and saw like the industrial ability to make art um, in Korea and in Vietnam, it's even more accessible. Um, one of my favorite things here is you have publicly access to laser cutting machines, to CNC machines, what? to water what mean jet. publicly,
2: public access.
4: Public access. Like free? Like you go into the shop. You say, can I have this cut? And you pay for it to have it cut, and you can leave. Where when I was in Baltimore, I was paying like $200 a month for a membership to a creative lab. Yeah. Where you could have access to just that. And then you still have to pay for the material and the use of the machine yeah. there. But you have access to it. Where here, oh, wow. you just go to it. I realized
3: realize that we just stopped at a creative lab in... Shanghai. And... Uh, sure I didn't realize that it, I don't know if it was the same in the States or not, but but in the states you that the membership only allows you access to it, so then you still have to pay to use it, pay for the materials, pay for
4: it, it depends what level of membership you're willing to pay for right but, but uh, there's some creative studios I saw for membership was like six hundred dollars a month yeah. to a thousand dollars a month, but when you have like laser cutting machines, it's sometimes like a ten to twenty thousand dollar machine. Wow. And then if you're a creative lab and you have like four of those machines and you have a lot of 3D printers and you have a whole bunch of woodworking equipment, the infrastructure and the support to just be fixing those costs a lot of money. But in Vietnam and Asia, people going to those kinds of shops nonstop every day, it's their full time business just to run that one CNC machine.
2: That's such a good idea. Yeah,
0: Is
3: it? So is it just that the volume's higher here in terms of the use of these machines if they're able to make it?
2: I mean, it would be higher in the U.S. if it was like that, if you just had.
3: Well, that's what I'm wondering. Or is it is it government-funded? Or...
4: They're just um, all the ones that I work with. They're either part of small, they're usually part of small mom-and-pop companies. Mm-hmm. So some guys like the bottom of my house, I don't do anything with it. I'm going to buy a CNC machine and mm-hmm. start charging people to use it. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have fully sustained businesses. Um, a lot of them, like one I work with, they used to have one office when I first came here, and now they have three different locations. Wow. But anyone can still go there and just use it. Even fabric printing, you can go to like huge industrial fabric printing places and have giant pieces of fabric printed for just the cost of the material and the, running the machine.
2: So we, for example, when we walked into your house, you have a beautiful, uh, very psychedelic piece of artwork and you say you like to work with that artist to get it printed on fabric for installations. What would that cost for a festival piece of building a tent with psychedelic art?
4: Uh, that's, that's a hard question. <laughs> How much did it cost to print that? What? Like
0: Poster? One and a half R&B. by one
4: and a half meter? Canvas. S- that one yeah. downstairs about, I think it was 60 centimeters by a meter and a half. And that one probably costs about a dollar to two dollars to print.
2: Oh my god!
4: And that's a uh, um, HD printing quality, so you have a very, very high quality. That's amazing.
2: Yeah. All right, we're going to be spending a lot more time in Vietnam. No, do they have these things in Thailand?
4: <laughs> you should have this in Thailand because um, even in Chiang Mai, I found some uh, CNC shops where you could go in and you could have whatever you want cut. So
2: and printed though.
4: You'd have to find the printing labs. So I'm sure there's one available somewhere in Thailand, but Thailand's a much more developed place. So a lot of these things are going to more industrial companies, and you go to a big company. Thailand's or a big more provider. developed than Vietnam. Yes, it's it's definitely had longer to develop than Vietnam. So Vietnam, I mean, like the place we're sitting in right now, 20 years ago was just rice fields five kilometers in every direction. And now it's the wealthiest neighborhood in, in all of Hanoi. And it's completely covered with houses. That's amazing. So the development here and the cultural clash between new and old is like every day, everywhere. And really amazing to see.
2: Is there resistance to the new?
4: Not really. I find that um, people in Vietnam are have very open and liberal mindsets. Um, like people ask me frequently, would you're an American when you think the Vietnamese wouldn't like you because of the American war and my tuk-tuk driver um, who's just helping me today. I've been hiring him for three years. I'm um, one of his like people He uses. Yeah, he works for me more frequently than anyone else. Cause I hire him so often to ship stuff for events. First time I met him, he came up to me. He said, I kill 30 Americans <laughs> it's like oh. what he's like yeah yeah I killed 30 Americans and that was also when I learned that all the tuk tuk drivers in Hanoi are Vietnam War vets so the government only gives tuk tuk drivers um, only. you can only be a tuk tuk driver if you're a veteran
2: what that's so interesting
4: yeah so all the guys driving the three wheeled vehicles around here they probably killed 30 Americans <laughs>
3: <laughs> how did you go from there to a relationship
1: like, it's what, lasted what do you, do you, do you, years,
4: yeah. How would you respond to that? <laughs> um, well, he was an hilarious guy. Um, he has a bullet wound in his left leg. Um, he's just really nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, he was very proud to show that to me. Um, his name's Yen, uh, and he's just a very nice guy, and he kept calling him all the time, and he started cutting us deals, um, and then I'd go for beers with him one time after, or he'd come help us deliver stuff late into the night and I' up hanging out at some random bar or club or uh, field in the middle of the nowhere to drop stuff off. Nice. And then just the more, I mean, anywhere you go in a neighborhood, if you go to the same shop 30 times in a row, you don't have to say what you want anymore. They just give you that coffee that you order every time.
0: Yeah. So...
4: Yeah, I, I but definitely I think Vietnamese culture is very, very liberal, very open, very kind, um, very um, direct. So making relationships here that are strong can happen very quickly. You just have to have a good attitude and take a moment to hang out before you do any business.
2: That's a good advice anywhere in the world, I think. <laughs> Seriously.
3: How, how is foreign investment here? I like think in Thailand... You know, business has to be fifty percent
2: or fifty-one percent.
4: Yeah, tie tie. So the same. So it's a, the same here. Um, the for you, you can't have companies registered in other countries that operate in Vietnam. But if you want to buy land here, you have to have a Vietnamese partner. If you want to open up a restaurant or a business here, you have to have a Vietnamese partner. They recommend having two. Um, but a lot of businesses operate with one. So it's a the same the same kind of style, but outside business interests here in Vietnam, especially, is a lot of people from China. Um, and if you go down the south, there's a lot of people from Russia. Um, there's towns in the south of Vietnam that all the signs are in Russian.
2: Yeah, we heard we heard that. Yeah, interesting. It's like it was, remember yeah. our kung fu friends were telling us that there's just like direct flights from all of these Russian cities to these Vietnamese cities now. It's just like direct, cheap, frequent. Little Russia.
4: Um. Yes, it is. It is Little Russia. If you go to places like Nechang, um, it's all Russian. Uh, Last year, the Vietnamese government cracked down on it because there's businesses not allowing vietnamese they were only allowing russian and western customers oh wow and they'd have no signs in vietnamese so the government came out and said you can't do that yeah. you have to be accepting of all clientele you have to have signs both in vietnamese and russian or in english hmm. but that's another thing where stuff here changes so quickly um and it's changing even quicker now that these tourist centers seem to like pop up overnight yeah of so places that two years ago weren't even popular or three years ago had almost no tourists. Now have hundreds and hundreds of them.
2: Like where you live.
4: They're like where I live. <laughs> yeah. That's there's awesome. places in Ningbing where when I went three years ago, there was no tickets for anything. And now there's giant parking lots and ticket lines and everything costs a lot of
2: money to do. Wow. Kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah.
4: Come to Vietnam right now before it changes. <laughs>
2: yeah, really? Um all right, let's get back to art. Um, if, um, What would you say, maybe this is a douchey question, you can say shut up, but like, what's the ultimate purpose of your art?
1: Ooh.
4: Ultimate purpose. Uh,
2: like, do you feel like it's coming from, I don't know, have you, have you heard Elizabeth Gilbert's talks or book, Big Magic, on creative genius? And like, uh-huh. that it's, entities outside us that just take host do you feel like as an artist you relate to that sentiment
4: yeah i would i would relate to the sentiment um in like the drive um me personally and a lot of other artists i meet who are creating non-stop if they stop it feels like you're gonna explode like you are doing something valuable and yeah. um, that you're wasting your time so me especially if i don't make something like every week or every other week or finish a project or continue along the lines to finish something, I just feel like I'm wasting my time. Totally. And it's a constant, constant push. I remember even when I was a kid, I'd wake up at 2 in the morning and be like, I need to draw this thing that I was thinking about before I can do anything else and just having to do it. So,
2: Do you feel like, okay, you grew up in normal Illinois where this was probably a very unusual mindset. <laughs> do you feel like you... I mean, I'm very impressed that how little you had the creativity squashed out of you. It seems like you really like forged a path and didn't let people knock the creativity out of you. How how'd you do that?
1: Hmm.
4: I am very lucky to have parents that supported me um, to push me into doing as much art as I could um, because I was like, I'm not going to do anything else. That's what I want to do. So they're like, fine,
2: then fucking do do it.
4: (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Let's support you to do that. But it was very weird. Like my high school art teacher. Um, is very conservative Christian. Um, he would listen to like Rush Limbaugh, like during the five minute breaks between classes. Um, he had this very, um, like, realism is the only type of art, which was the same thing that Hitler was <laughs> pushing all the time. So, it was like, he had this very narrow mindset about what art was. So, he taught art about skill about how like real you could represent something or how well you could carve it or that that was his only focus mm-hmm. so learn trying to do like the type of art i do now in that conditions didn't exist
2: yeah so how did you how did you survive i mean
4: mm, i just i just never stopped i think my my did you, did
2: you obey him like four class projects? Were you making it based on what he would say? Or would you just say like, you're wrong, I'm doing and doing my own thing?
4: Uh, I think artists are very good at when they're given a project or a directive, they look for how many ways they can break that directive yeah. while still staying true to it. Totally. So how can we manipulate the message as much as possible yeah. while still creating like Artists same... are the best liars, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, best liars. I would say that's true um yeah definitely a constricting environment um but uh, that's one of the reasons i felt the need to leave it um and went to baltimore uh, and then pushed on to the other side of the planet
2: that's awesome i had a little bit of a similar experience but at a younger age and it did crush me i was like a bit of a child prodigy artist and i started taking adult classes outside of school because you know I wanted more and more and more art couldn't get enough and then by the time I was like eight almost nine I had this art teacher who was just like that where anytime I painted something from my imagination or like I included something that wasn't there into a still life or something I would get into huge amounts of trouble and she would tell me you know like I didn't understand and I was a bad artist and I was doing it all wrong and this is I was like Eight years old getting this message, and I was like, all right, then I'm fucking done. like I'm done. I don't want to do this. this isn't any fun and then i didn't I didn't paint again until I was nineteen.
4: Um, uh, this is why I became an art teacher, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah man.
4: Yeah. break that stop that nonsense.
2: It's yeah. so weird <laughs> like how I don't I can't imagine being the the main thing, the main type of teacher that's supposed to inspire creativity and then to just you know. S- squash children as your job instead. <laughs> there's there's way more art squashers than there are art teachers in the public education system.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's crazy. Like, how does that
3: happen? Like, who's like you know? I hate fucking kids. I'm gonna become a teacher then. Yeah. The way to get back at all those kids that you know, I mean I mean I. <sighs> speaking from like I know some people, and that's you know, there are some great teachers out there. But Dan. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but I also man, know Dan. some people who became teachers. And I'm just like oh my god. It's probably listening to Russian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know the type. I was teaching third grade. I just I shudder to think.
4: Mm. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons. That's the main drive for why I became a teacher. Is because mm. I had so much experience with terrible, terrible teachers through like even college and in middle school and high school, and I just like I can do better. That's great motivation. Like
3: yeah. Uh. So do you do you think that most people are The way that you described, where you need to create something, you have this energy that's going to consume you if you don't. Do you think this is typical of everyone?
2: Everyone who's not an artist, everyone. Just everyone in in
3: general. Maybe the artists just realize what's happening and are able to harness it. Or do you think that not everybody operates that way, and that there's
0: different frequencies?
2: (laughs) I think yeah. Asking. Let's uh. So here in Vietnam. Well, maybe we'll see if I edit this out, and I'll just tell you, here in Vietnam, we've had uh, some some nice times over the last couple of days with your local delicacy, nitrous, and... Uh- <laughs>
4: Blast! That's terrible. <laughs> terrible stuff.
2: <laughs> that uh, that that during one of these night shows, I turned to him and I was like, "You have to give art a chance. You were born to be an artist." Like, man, you just have to keep on trying. I could see it. Like, you just, you just. I mean, no one ever handed him. I. That's what I said. I like pulled away from this night shoot and I was like, "You were born to be an artist. No one ever handed you a paintbrush." <laughs> and just urgently, I was like, "You got it. You got to start painting and now." I've been telling him so as we get back home he's really got to like start doing art because i i totally think that no one has ever tried to tell him to do art or help him do art he's been like my assistant muralist since we got together that i've been a whatever professional artist since for my career whole career i guess and yeah he started assisting me and he's fucking incredible but he doesn't think he is but he's so stupid but now he's seen other terrible artists and he 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 didn't know that people could like be bad at art because he's naturally good, but I think he has a lot of uh so many amazing ideas in him that would be he just has never experienced that thing of like channeling the creative genius and letting it flow through you in something other than words so I think that yeah, I don't know how do you inspire a thirty year old man to become an artist <laughs> like it's in you i see it yeah, i think i, I, I think maybe like... everyone has this force, but like definitely being an artist you you, once you bring that force to fruition and experience that whole thing and like how fucking delightful and gratifying and like uncontrollable but also controllable that feels, then, yeah, you get a taste for it and you just have to keep doing it again. But if you never get it in the first place, then, yeah, it probably just feels like chaotic energy bouncing around you and you don't really know what it is. You've never channeled it before. You're not going to have the same desire to bring it to fruition because you've, you've never done it. Sorry, you can answer the question too. <laughs> <laughs> as,
4: as an art teacher, I have so much to say to that. <laughs> like, what is art? Uh, what makes good art? Um, and the more the more I make art, the more I see people who have that drive. The less I see art fit in any particular box. I mean, someone who makes an amazing aquaponics setup that that can be art. Like, I've seen some beautiful setups like that, and the attention to detail is the same as painting. Um, making a good house is the same thing um, it's just i don't i don't think there's any barrier to it it's taking that inspiration and just pushing it into what makes you not want to stop
3: so i totally agree i think that my creativity lies more in like an analytical logical sort of i like to to optimize things and like um i think i think that's My creative expression but i still think that my energy flow is sort of different than what you described like rather than there's sort of an inertia to it where if i go if i become at rest it's difficult for me to get out of rest but if i start to do something then i'll do that thing until i'm blue in the face Mm -hmm. and like but then it sucks because if, if that thing is watching Netflix, then like, <laughs> I'm content to watch Netflix until something <laughs> pushes me out of it. You know, it's not so much where I'm like, ah, oh, shit, I haven't done anything this week. It's, you know, It sucks because I'm definitely not as productive as, as some
2: people. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> he looks at that. me. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. used to
0: be
4: totally addicted to video games nonstop. I want to say addicted. I don't even regret the time I, I spent with it, but the thousands of hours that disappeared. But I don't really regret it. Still, <laughs> I think it just taught me something different. Mm-hmm. But most people would say it's was waste of time.
2: <laughs> yeah, but like he's asking, I think, like, for example, I I can watch Netflix for a certain period of time, but then for the most part, I need to then either get out something to do. Like I want, I like my favorite way to watch Netflix is either while cooking or drawing, and. Mm-hmm. Um, if, yeah like i i can't i can't be at rest i start feeling i start feeling i've become very aware of every second of my life ticking away if it, if it after a certain period of time where i'm just consuming instead of creating it just starts feeling like boiling and itchy and yeah. uh but
0: i think
3: i wonder if i just don't get that or if i get that don't realize what it is and, and then, then you put a cigarette of, in it yeah <laughs> i or think so some other you know not-so-benign habit, you know, whatever it is, whether it's just feeling bad or, you know. Yeah, totally. rest or whatever.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think artistic expression has always been the way to kind of get control over your emotions in a really productive way, in my experience, whether that's, you know, singing, writing songs, cooking, making paintings whatever the situation may be but yeah definitely i think if i of the times where i have been overcome by whatever inertia then those are absolutely the times that are the most depressed no doubt about it it's absolutely correlated so i guess as an art teacher and creative person do you have any advice for for him
4: (laughs) well i i watch netflix all the time while i'm making art (laughs) yeah so you can always do something while you're watching Netflix. I prefer advice. It's pre- practical advice. Yeah. I appreciate. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer to have Netflix or something in the background when I'm doing anything.
2: Totally, That's me too.
1: Why do
0: yeah. you think
1: that is?
4: Well, a lot of my practice is like setting something up. So I set it up and I have a clear list of goals and I know it's going to take me maybe these 2 or 3 hours to do them and I already know what I'm doing. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to communicate so I just put something on that I want to listen to or something on a watch, like well, half half watch. Yeah. Um, and then I start doing those tasks and it makes the time fly by. Some people with podcasts.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Some
4: people with music. I love a good science fiction show with some weird set design like in the background and, and strange plot lines and just listen to that or watch My it a little bit. is
2: the set design.
4: Yeah. I've i always wanted to get into set design.
2: You you're perfect for it. You're, you have way more experience than I did when I went into. I started when I was 23. Um, or I mean, I did it. I did it in college, but started in LA when I was 23. I worked on a great deal of weird ass science fiction movies and TV shows, just making the most delightfully bizarre, horrible props and oh. set dressings you can imagine. I'd love to
4: hear more about I think that. You'd have,
2: a, you'd have a grand old time.
4: Yeah, I saw that as an art. I tried to take classes when I was in college that focused on that because it's like this is just really it's sculpture with a very direct function. Absolutely. And creating an environment and then that's why I really fell in festivals because it's kind of this merger of both. You're creating very experiential environments that are like totally encapsulating like a set but you're also creating installations that are to be interacted with by the general public so there's like Lots of these creative limitations, but you're doing you're kind of merging all these strange art forms in the same way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the main reason why I left is because of well, I was trying to simultaneously I was working a bit as a consulting consultant on set for um, trying to have it be like a low waste set, so trying to do a combination of environmental things and art things, but for the most part, sets are most unbelievably wasteful things on earth i mean like it is crazy almost everything you buy or make brand new you throw it in the dumpster because it's more expensive and more resources and more time to figure out ways to donate it or there's like different laws against donating it Hmm. and in addition to that so many of the places the materials i was working with and the places i was working in i was getting so sick all the time i mean it's so toxic and that's why working in festivals seems like a vastly better alternative. I mean, for the most part, it's a it really is a culture of leave no trace and attention to the environment. And mm. you're building things that the attention is for when you break them down to either reuse them again or in some way not harm the earth with what you've created. And yeah. that's amazing.
4: Leave no trace. Yeah. Yeah very hard so i think to you do. made the
2: right decisions when trying. <laughs> i mean <laughs> doing you. stuff for sets and uh, props or whatever is still really fucking cool to, but you're you're not destroying the planet you're you're creating uh, try to stuff.
4: repurpose it all yeah. <laughs> it's very hard to do and even with festivals there's always a considerable about considerable amount of waste yeah but it's why it's really good for festivals to work with artists throughout the year and not just have an artist come and go, but try to build um, a working relationship with a single artist because all those materials can be stored or it can be repurposed or it can be used the next year. And if you have an artist that's going to come back and knows what's there and knows what you have, then that it doesn't go to waste. Or even after the event, the artist can take that material and use it for something completely different. So I know like all the waste i ever collect from festivals i always try to take as much of it back and turn it into something new
0: that's amazing
4: uh, it makes some very strange things <laughs> that's also
2: awesome all right so you have the advice now you're going to become an artist by watching netflix and making random shit while watching netflix sounds like a good plan
3: I'll give it a shot. See the thing is like, you know, if I'm designing a hydroponic system, it'd be really hard to to dual focus that with a
2: Right, but I guess what he's saying and what how you definitely see my process is that first I have a period where I'm thinking through everything and planning and I'm incapable of really interacting with the outside world. Like I can't talk to you. I'm I'm just in that making lists, making the plan zone. And then once that whole thing is formulated then I then it's perfect to be watching tv and like now that it's all there's no more thinking it's only flow time yeah do all the thinking up front so but I don't know how that would apply to a hydroponic system
4: I, I would say it is exactly it. like you you're going to spend months thinking designing planning gathering materials putting everything together making plans for every little step backup plans if something goes wrong uh back money in case this breaks or all kinds of things but then that's especially why with festivals because it's kind of like climbing climbing a mountain um even with any big project it's like climbing a mountain you have this slow gradual build where you're just planning your steps you keep looking at the top you keep planning your steps figuring it out you're gathering everything you need and then you start getting up above the tree line. It just becomes so hard. And the sun is crazy. The work becomes twice as hard. You have less oxygen. You're, you're, all those pieces are coming together. And then when you get to the top, you just collapse. <laughs> <laughs> and you have, In a festival, you get three days to party and just lay there and enjoy it. Just like at the top of the mountain, you get to lay there and enjoy the view. And then you have to climb back down. <laughs> And then at a festival, you have to take everything apart. (laughs) So,
2: it's a beautiful analogy.
4: (laughs) But I definitely think it's about that planning process. Because I know, like, I want to watch Netflix when I'm drawing detailed designs and trying to figure everything out. That's, That's all the steps. But then, like, at a festival, you don't have time for anything to go wrong. You don't have time for something to back or back up or to break. You have to have a plan for exactly that. You have to put buffer times if you know that could go wrong. So you have this very short time span to make sure that thing happens. And so for any week you spend building at the festival, you're spending a month to two months Mm -hmm. thinking about every little plan, every little detail of how it's going to go. Sometimes you get somewhere you don't even know the materials. So you plan to work with four different types of material, Mm -hmm. especially in Southeast Asia where you don't have a a Menards or a Home Depot to go buy everything at. Uh
2: yeah so when you're when you're going to a brand new place and you don't know the materials are you getting your info from like other artists who have been there or are you usually just showing up like totally with no idea what's going to happen it's
4: very different all over um and i think that's one of the that's a very, that's a very good question because it leads into one i find the most difficult things for artists in southeast asia um, for anywhere you can probably experience this pie is access While there is a lot of access to things like CNC machines and metal workers who will do projects for you or pretty much every service you can find, like finding them is a whole nother thing. Um, Being able to talk to them and build that relationship is a whole nother thing. Um, And then just getting getting the product back to your house can be a struggle. So that's what's one of the biggest barriers for artists here is for like where do I get paint? What is yeah. the quality of paint that I can get? Where can I get wood? What type of wood can I get? Where can I print this item? I and mean, there's just there's no phone book here. If you look up websites, it's all in Vietnamese or in Thai. Totally. Especially the small mom and pop businesses that just operate by word of mouth, and those are the ones you want to find, and those are the the good ones. But doing that is a it's a whole other struggle. So, I mean, a lot of artists in Southeast Asia who could do amazing things because they haven't been here for several years finding all those places. They just they are kind of stuck.
1: Yeah.
4: I, I constantly try to find artists and help them close that barrier. And that's why I really love to c- collaborate because so many people have good ideas and I have a lot of access because I've been pumping out good ideas as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes bad. But collaboration is how everyone learns, and if you teach somebody where they can buy something that's going to help them create, they're going to help you something else down the line. So collaboration I think is something that's really important, especially in places like Asia where we're kind of like in these little western spaceships in our tiny communities in a very large community.
3: How do you go about reaching out in order to facilitate this collaboration?
4: Uh, festivals, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great place for it. it's like uh, kind of like these giant homing beacons <laughs> yeah. where artists of all shapes and sizes come to. So it's a really good. That's one of the best places, especially for networking.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
4: the culture behind festivals is the true value in them, not just what you're creating, but the people who work together to create those things. And sometimes very unexpected,
1: mm-hmm.
4: you know, like. I mean, Jai Tep has a fantastic artist from the Netherlands um, who has a crazy woodcut house in the middle of Amsterdam. What? And he made the giant mantis so stage oh, at wow. Jai Tep. Um And he specializes in going to a junkyard, pulling out every oh. kind of random material you can find. So into it. And just making what he set out to make. So he, he's all about trying to find what the material can be, not what it is. Oh. Um, and that's a what a good mission statement. Yeah, that is his mission statement. I'll just plug uh, Project Thirty Two <laughs> <Nice. laughs> Lud. L O D. L U D. Yeah, he is an amazing studio in Bangkok, um, but he oh, has nice. many all over the place. Let's get him on the podcast. Just definitely go see Lud. <laughs> um,
3: we, we were blown away by Jai Tap. It was our first Thailand my, my festival. First, yeah,
2: yeah. Why'd you say my first? Yeah, I went to a bunch of festivals about yes. Things. Oh, oh. Yeah, no, it was mine too. Up to. uh, <laughs> no, wait, no, it wasn't. What, we went to one in New Zealand before that, which oh, that's was also right. fucking amazing.
0: That yeah, was also amazing, sure.
3: Um, and we were in we production. We weren't sure what, what to expre- uh, expect, and we were blown away by everything in JITEP right now. The installations, everything was
2: just. We got engaged at JITEP.
4: Really? congratulations
2: <laughs> it was your art that led us yes. there it, that's the way it corralled us you know <laughs> to so each other
4: where in did you get engaged in our tent <laughs> so, not quite
2: but you know it was the, the overall energy of JITEP <laughs> <That's fantastic. laughs> and then and then we put on a show we did yeah oh, what at home stage remember
3: oh yeah that was great I wish we could find that guy we, we stumbled he, Maybe on he's it. a
2: secret fan of the podcast. Yeah, That'd be great.
3: It was at at home stage Saturday night.
2: Yeah,
3: it was like everything was kind of like right before everything was shutting down. We stumbled upon. We're not sure if he was like a legitimate actor, just some dude who found a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he, he was killing. What's the difference between It, it like? was amazing. He was so good at what he did, like stand up comedian but it was just a bunch of people like sitting on haystacks like just like listening to this guy <laughs> just go on and on and on i mean it was it was like he's like called us in and we like sat up there with him it was it was, it was one of the highlights of jai tap for us was,
4: This and he was doing was... comedy
3: he was funny i guess it was comedy yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: do, you, was... do you know everyone from hanoi who went to jai tap is that a dumb question yeah pretty much we met a guy who gave us a kazoo we would love to find him again. You wouldn't know who he was. He was a man. <laughs> he did was. He, did he have a beard? I don't. think So he was white. I don't think he had a beard. I'm trying to picture him in my mind's eye.
3: I don't think he
0: had a beard, think he was like kind of curly brown hair.
2: Yeah. Is
4: this helping? Is this <laughs> narrow it <laughs> Do down that is? a little bit? This is narrowing down a little bit.
2: How many bad Hanoi man? people? Yeah. How many Hanoi festy people are there? At PAI, Ooh. it's like exclusively festy people who live there, basically. Yeah. Other than uh, the Kung Fu people.
4: Well, when Quest was happening, um, the Hanoi population changes a lot. So yeah. around Quest, you get a lot of festy people. Right. And
2: everyone we met in PAI, 100% of them were going to Quest.
4: Yeah. And then when Quest got canceled, everyone's like, where can
2: we go next? Yeah, <laughs>
4: JITEP. Let's all go to JITEP. Hmm. There was two airplane rides where over thirty of the passengers were all from Hanoi going to JITEP. That's awesome. <laughs> from friends that I knew flying there. So a large population from Hanoi came to JITEP. That's cool. But might know the curly-haired man. We'll <laughs> I mean, have
2: to go through Facebook later. Yeah. <laughs> or if he band. winds up listening to this, I know. Well, we tried to. JITE- man. We we did like a dry episode of the podcast before reviewing it and featuring some music from Liliana, and uh, we like tried to. Because we were trying to find a bunch of people whose like names we didn't get, because obviously like we, we don't walk around with our phones or pens and pencils. We gave out a bunch of uh, podcast business cards, hoping that people would come to us, but that didn't really seem to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and stickers, I thought the stickers would really work with the festival types, but um, I don't know where to go with it. Yeah. So Festivals, you meet so many love. Oh yeah, all the listeners who won't tell us who they are. It's none of our We're friends find and family. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Um go to the questions. What's the least realistic thing you believe in?
4: Whoa. <laughs> it's a very off um it's from left field. How do I answer that question? Can you ask one more time? <laughs>
2: what's the most unrealistic thing you believe in? That's how it goes.
0: Oh man,
4: (laughs) The most unrealistic thing I believe in, I don't know, I'm trying to see where to go with this, Uh, aliens, (laughs) Uh, but that's pretty realistic in my point of view, I don't know, I'm very much a realist person, so unrealistic ideals more come into the creativity the creativity I feel like you can make anything so when you're, you're an artist there is no unrealistic goals there's just how can we get to that goal so I'm not,
0: I'm not really
4: sure how to answer that is that close does that work
2: I'll, I'll allow it I'll close it. Yeah. <laughs> how would
4: how would you answer that question
2: We're supposed to be saving this for like our 100th episode, but let's see. Trevor, you can answer it. I answered it once.
3: That the U.S. school system is not doomed.
2: (laughs) Do you think that would be your answer all the time, or just be no? Um,
4: Wait, Brexit won't happen. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh,
2: Aliens could work.
3: It's that. That's you know. I I I tend to agree with you as well. I mean I, I. a vast universe out there, it seems you know more unlikely that you we're know, the only organisms that, live. but you know, part of the fun of that question is seeing where how people take it, how people interpret it, what they do with it, where they go with it. Um, because it's not easy to answer because it's inherently contrary. It's like if you can believe in it, how could you know,
4: be unrealistic? Yeah, you know.
2: yeah, but I don't really think so. I mean, especially and karma, yeah. A huge reason why we we but... bonded with Fred was our uh, s- interesting, simultaneous great love and great annoyance for the hippie community <laughs> of being like that. You can just be having a really cool conversation, and then someone will just drop. Yeah, but Mercury was in retrograde, so like that doesn't even matter. And then you're just like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's how I, that's how I feel personally. But those right. are people who are like you know, fucking fantastic people who are, who are who are Amazing in so many ways, and then believe in the most <laughs> bizarre, unrealistic shit. And do you? Th- do they? They must have some sense that the majority of the world thinks that they're crazy, right? I don't really know. I guess we haven't really had that Maybe. many Mercury and retrograde people on here. Because how do we know that he's not? <laughs> Are you a Mercury, <laughs> a Mercury <and> retrograde person? <laughs> do-
4: I will answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> You're not welcome on this podcast anymore. <laughs>
2: So don't you feel? I feel like it's a similar thing of like when you're in the, with when you're hanging with normies that it's as soon as somebody says something along the lines of, "Oh yeah, well, like due to God's grace, like blah 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 blah," that mm. you're like, "Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh shit! Oh shit! Where do we go from here?" And when you're hanging with hippies, so it's like, "Oh no, but wait, what's your what's your star sign? Oh, but what's your moon rising sign?" And then yeah. just like I. Ugh. Could, could we just skip that part and just have the rest of the conversation? <laughs> or
4: all the personal spiritual like opinions and viewpoints that exist like so varied. That's so I'm like, I don't answer that question because I don't wanna step on any toes. <laughs> There's just so many <laughs> right. different existing theories and
2: Okay. A lot of our a lot of our standard questions were designed very specifically with the intention of trying to force people to step on other people's toes. But... <laughs> so you're gonna love this section. No. Oh, yay! Um, and when we were first starting the podcast, uh, we originally had um, a, like a rapid fire game that was called "Interesting or Not," and because mm-hmm. the podcast is called "Occasionally Interesting," and we were coming up with a list of things where. It was ba- It was similar to this question, I guess, of like, what do you find interesting, or not? And we had to come up with things that people could find interesting that we didn't necessarily. And again, turning a lot to like some of the more hippie parties where we that we've hung out with. And, it's,
3: it's really hard to come up with I- ideas of things you don't find interesting. Like, what
2: what don't you find interesting?
3: This is a really, you know, come up with ten things right now that you don't find interesting.
0: <laughs> hmm.
2: It's not exactly <laughs> easy. Yeah, Ac- accounting. Accounting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, like, same thing. I've, I've come up with something that, like, probably you don't believe in, that you're about to go to dinner with people. At least one of those people believes in strongly, you know, and probably vice versa for you. They don't believe in something you take as an absolute truth. Mm. Maybe that is aliens. Or maybe it's the art matters. Maybe it's, you know
3: reality it's a computer program
2: yeah computer simulation
4: that, that's probably true
2: yeah <laughs> I, I believe it
3: I think, I think there's definitely compelling arguments for it mm. I
2: don't cool. think that's unrealistic I mean <laughs> this is there's
4: there's no proof and there's no way to argue it just like any other of the things
3: we were just mentioning but I mean what would it really matter if it is if it isn't
2: no. <laughs> so why don't you like to step on other people's toes? <laughs> uh, Interesting concept. You value being nice over over having a strong opinion that might open someone's mind. I'm really leading you here. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to ask this question. Well, I don't think having list, an what? opinion
3: is going to really open anybody's mind in this topic. I think that, like religion, it's best to be like, okay, that's
2: what about unrealistic happy that things that's you believe, what you in? believe. Oh.
3: yeah.
4: I feel that every, everything has some intrinsic value. So Tell maybe them. not all of it, but maybe parts of it. Maybe it's doing something for someone else that it's not necessarily doing for me. So it's I don't want to step on someone's toes. I don't want anyone to stop believing in something that helps them. I don't want my opinion to sway that. So especially as a teacher, like I'm, I'm constantly confronted when i was teaching art especially those kinds of crazy ideas and understandings and perceptions of the world and how a student might want to represent something um it is my job to help them do that not question it so i facilitate not stop
3: do you think that those forms of expressions or ideas or or beliefs are always helpful positive um, maybe not always. Do you think it's, do you think you have enough obligations, the right word, or if you find it to not be,
4: to say that or to intervene? Hmm. I think it's especially a teacher's job, and I think it should be everyone's job to not intervene, but to help people understand. So maybe you don't understand something, or you don't agree with it, or you think it's bad. Maybe that's because you understand it in a different way that that person doesn't. And all you can do is let karma happen and let it come back around so they understand it, or let the world teach them, or try to help them develop a mindset so they can understand in the way you do um that's one of the reasons we really want to be an art teacher because i want to teach like i didn't specifically want to teach art i wanted to teach a lot of things and my degree in art specializes in like like alternative learning through art so how can i teach somebody about philosophy by doing a photo project or how
2: can you i gotta t- listen to dance episode you guys would be best friends <laughs> that was, that was a fantastic
3: answer <laughs> by the way I- do you think you'll ever be a te- like te- a conventional teacher again at some point?
4: Uh, definitely. Yeah. I definitely think I will be. I I'm, I think I'm looking for the opportunity.
3: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you just, you have the head and the disposition for it. So, I mean, that was, that was a beautiful answer. If there was one behavior or action you could get everyone in the world to do or stop doing, what would it be?
4: Hmm. That's a very good question. I know I had an answer for this at some point. Um, Man, my mind is swimming with so many different things to answer this with. Um, Let's go for something simple Uh, biting your nails.
0: Oh, the world would be such a wonderful
4: place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, More, um, taking it a little bit further, I definitely would like people to not put art in a box. I think that's one of the most struggling, the things I struggle with the most, is uh, how people classify what art is. Um, Because there really is no classification. One of my favorite conversations to have in the classroom is talking to my students about what is art and how do you define it? Because there is no answer. And the moment you start trying to answer that, you find out that almost everything is art. And there's so many great examples of this. But I think it's, it's that. I mean, a lot of people come to me, a lot of artists, I mean, it, like anyone who's drawn probably has had the experience. So like, that's a really nice drawing. I can draw stick figures, but that's as far as I can go. Yeah, I'm like, "That's not, not necessarily what art is. <laughs> and especially as an art teacher's job and as an artist is to try to show people what art can be and how it can change and be all kinds of different things. So not to classify it. Come back to festivals. That's why I love festivals, because you can create a sculpture that houses a musical performance that then later turns into some interactive performance, and suddenly you have people climbing all over it later in the day. So you like you never know what its purpose is or what type of art it's for or is it for any type of art. It just constantly breaks people's perceptions and understandings and keeps opening those little doors of like, oh that's those awe moments. So I think yeah that 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 would be it.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. Also
4: also fingernails. (laughs) (laughs) These are very good questions. (laughs) Yeah.
3: What is the most annoying thing about people?
2: fighting their nails
4: um people (laughs) um i don't know the more you get to know anybody and the more it becomes hard to know them um can i quote ender's game (laughs) you
2: quote anything you want
4: um to know your enemy is to love them and when you love them you destroy them so um I guess to unpack that is the moment you understand somebody you truly love them but the moment you truly love them and understand them you know exactly their downfalls and their tics and their problems and, and then you just got to realize that everybody has that and you're one of those people that has that and so I think it's
2: people <laughs> Could you, could you? I couldn't imagine a more annoying person than someone who didn't have ticks and downfalls and issues, and someone who's just perfect all the time. If I fucking hate them. That would—I yeah, don't think that exists I either. Mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess I would probably hate them because it would seem so inauthentic. Yeah, but, but I feel,
4: and I think the ones that you think are perfect, you just don't know them very well. Yeah. So the closer you get, the more you see. Like, like in SpongeBob, where you you have a face from far away, and then they zoom the camera in, and you're like, "Whoa, that's terrible!"
2: <laughs> Incredible analogy.
3: A full on Monet.
2: <laughs> what is something that's really popular now, but in five years, everyone will look back on and be embarrassed by?
4: Hmm. I think every, everybody's music choices when they're a kid <laughs> is an obvious one
2: uh, I was born loving the Beatles but my parents probably helped
3: <laughs> I think like the first time I heard trap music was in, in Neman social in Chiang Mai I'm like what the hell is going on here <laughs> yeah. they're
2: just they're just mumbling there's <laughs> whining into a synthesizer yeah, it's
3: whiny too it's uh, I guess um, to each
4: their own uh, is that like experimental noise music?
3: No, no. It's like it's the new it's, rap. It's like, it's like southern rap of trap houses, where it, it, I mean, it's just it's to like and they're really shitty beats too. Like there's not, like, there's no redeeming quality about it. Where it's somebody complaining, but inaudibly, like <speaking>
4: <speaking> so, like mumble
3: rap. Yeah, like you don't even have to rhyme now. Like you don't, even, you're not even saying word. I mean, it's it's the most crazy phenomenon I've ever. Maybe I'm just getting old. I, don't
1: know.
4: I, I definitely miss, miss Eminem. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I like when somebody's just like, you're random out and like somebody throws on an old Eminem and you're like, oh my God, that guy.
2: Uh, yeah. Good kid. Yeah.
4: Uh, timeless. <laughs> Who
3: is that? What is your favorite thing about yourself?
4: hmm That I never can stop creating art.
3: (laughs) Good answer.
2: What's your most embarrassing story from childhood?
4: Ooh. Hmm. It has to do with artwork. Oh, no!
1: (laughs)
2: Um,
4: when I was in high school, I was one of those kind of crazy goth kids who just made art and stayed to himself. Um still have the same earrings that i had when i was in high school and i would make uh very angsty like horrible art creations about depression and all the angsty high school stuff and being an artist with a very liberal mindset in a very conservative town this was very easily misunderstood um one of the painting series i was doing at the time had to do with like Basically, like social issues I saw amongst people. So I do kind, kind of like interactions of like violent, um, violent acts. But then I would <clears throat> take all the stuff that was violent in the act and I would like cut it out. Like if somebody cut out the faces on a magazine, um, and just like took the sections out that they don't like and I would cut those sections out and I would make them beautiful colors, like beautiful, crazy colors that'd be like, flushed everywhere and so my art teacher at the time was like i need realism i would paint a very realistic beautiful room like everything's very normal maybe that like blood splatter on the wall or that man who's very angry at his wife or the the girlfriend who's screaming at the boyfriend about something i would just like all that would just be beautiful colors so the the interactions within the environment would just be beautiful colors but everything else would be like very realistic um and some people would look at these and they before before they had the beautiful colors installed into them and they just see like a violent murder scene or they would see like some kind of like a home like abuse issue being painted and when i was doing sketches of these i do all these little experimental sketches like the life studies and i forgot my sketchbook one time in the cafeteria. And a kid took it and he put the sketches all over the school and just like ripped them out of my sketchbook and like stuck some to people's lockers and dropped some in the hallways. And suddenly have all these people going to the principal's office, telling the principal, this, this kid, this artist, this crazy goth kid, he's threatening my life. He's going to shoot up the school, like Columbine. And I'm suddenly called the principal's office and the principal's like, it's like, why are you trying to threaten so and so? And I'm just I'm just like an artist who keeps to himself. Like I was I was even like I wasn't even in my school most of the time at this time. I actually was taking art classes at the local college for high school and college credit. So I was only in my school for maybe three classes a day, and then the rest of the half of the day I was in a different side of town. So I wasn't even very connected to my high school environment. And so when I'm being pulled in, asking why I'm threatening, who knows who, and you have the glass weirs and every kid in the school is staring at you through the thing. Like, I had just the most, like, very embarrassing moment. And for my last year of school, I'm pretty sure half the school thought I was some kind of crazy murderer who was drawing murder drawings.
2: <laughs> that's, that's beyond, like, oh man, that's just sad.
4: Yeah. Uh, this is one of the things that drove me to be a better teacher yeah that
2: really reframe reframes your earlier answer of like what is art and trying to just encourage any type of expression Mm -hmm. and yeah, i feel like i can't. i mean when i was still creating art or whatever middle school high school type stuff of anything i was writing a lot of songs and like my mom was such a chill mom for being like i was writing the most fucking horrifying shit you can imagine it was really either like depressing suicidal all this stuff and sometimes drawing terrible things and she was just like you sure you sure make some uh some interesting choices in your art it's uh i guess it's good that you know you're getting it out that way and that therefore you get to be such a happy person or whatever but definitely i feel like the average person sees that and thinks that it's an exact reflection of everything inside of you, mm-hmm. and that's so rarely the case, right? I mean, yeah. so rarely is art me.
4: Yeah, and as an art teacher, every every kid goes through that phase. Of course. Every kid is going to make some kind of angsty, emotional, depressed piece of art, and it's healthy and should be encouraged. Yeah. But it's very that's bad a really when it's a really good misunderstood. message.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's I mean, how it seems like it would lead to way more issues to be told that like you're not allowed to express that and you have to repress any repress type of that artistic that. expression. Yeah, that of course that's going to come up in actually more dramatic way than if you can just, you know, can get it out on paper and then have it removed from you.
4: Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. Try to encourage that every single day. It's amazing. Did you yeah. did you make any angsty angsty Paintings or drawings. Did you do
2: anything angsty at all? Yeah, no, I went through a punk rock phase. Like just I like listening to music.
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah, that's pretty angsty. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 The bells. <laughs> Maybe I just never had an outlet.
2: Yeah. Maybe you're about to get angsty as shit and you start drawing while watching science fiction on Netflix. <laughs>
4: I had a friend in high school, and he was he was on the football team. He's like super normal guy, and no like very classic American like high school student. But after school, he would take he'd always try to get microwaves. People were throwing away microwaves or a broken one or one from a thrift shop, and he would take them behind the Walmart and he would just put stuff in the microwaves, just like try, try to make stuff explode. Like put a brick in there or a boiled egg or. Like some slime or a toy that he got from the discount store—just all kinds of random stuff. Just watch it explode. And one day I was like, "You should, you should start recording this because it's basically like artwork. and yeah. you're just watching these things explode and how they, how it happens is fascinating." And I think ten years later, there's now like a YouTube channel just dedicated to putting stuff in microwaves.
3: Yeah, <laughs> awesome. yeah, went so like like a stack of CDs
4: yeah but i was like that's that's his art making stuff yeah. explode in microwaves that's that's his his angsty way to get him out <laughs> the was, emotions yeah,
3: out we, did, we used to take uh it's amazing we never blew ourselves up um one of our favorite ones was we take a, like a, a christmas tree ornament like a ball and we would put all sorts of flammable substances into that ball and then light it on fire really cool fun game to try it at home kids <laughs> yeah.
2: all of our children listeners um,
3: but my parents always encouraged me. Like I remember the one time we had like cut soda cans on our driveway, and we had like different different shit in each soda can, light lit on fire, just to see what would happen. Like I mean, we're talking so one was gas, which I mean that is extremely fucking dangerous. Like now that yeah. I know, I've seen what gas can do. I mean firsthand, and like hairspray, I and mean, we also potato cannons and shit like that as well. Um, but I remember like our parents pulled in, my brother. This is what I was doing this shit with, and we're thinking we're gonna be in so much trouble. They didn't even bat an eye. They were just like, "All right, that's normal," and just kept walking. <laughs> and I'm like, this, "This is crazy." All right, let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> like, they were they were cool. I don't know. Is that angsty? Playing, like playing random show on fire like that?
4: I think experimenting with destruction and creation yeah. as a kid is. is yeah. yeah.
3: We cut a tree down <laughs> once in our backyard. <laughs> Which again I would not recommend because we did this with a hatchet I and mean, this was a pretty pretty tall tree. And we didn't we didn't exactly realize before we did it that once you cut it down, you then have to do something with it, which requires then cutting it in half multiple more times so you can move the fucker. <laughs> of course we needed to move it before our parents realized that we cut down a fucking tree
2: in the backyard.
3: <laughs> that was a long day.
2: Did they ever find out?
3: No, we had a really big backyard, thankfully. And truthfully, it was actually, we were cutting it down to try to build an underground grow room. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. With that project halfway through, too. because It's also really hard to dig a hole that large.
4: It was buried, like a train. <laughs> <laughs> we
3: got pretty close. We did crazy times. Alright, what is the mo- what is the <laughs> book that has most influenced your life?
1: Ooh,
4: I kind of come to two books um, that influence me a lot. Um, one is called The Lone Wolf, and it's about um, it's about this woman's husband dies, and then her like mother told her this legend about a spirit the spirit of your loved one would come back to you in the form of an animal. But it, it basically, it, it goes into, like, lo- the book's about loss, and it's about um, processing like right, emotions, um, and it kind of goes into all these very interesting social interactions of her when she was, after she lost her husband, and how her kids dealt with it, how her family, and it's, and they bring up all these, like, instances, um, I can't really remember now, but it, the main premise is about the spirit of her husband that just keeps coming back in the form of this wolf over and over again to the house each day to check up. And like each time the wolf shows up, it like initiates some kind of like thing in the previous story of that day that teaches you a new lesson. Um, And it is very much structured, kind of like a biblical story where the story is meant to teach you life lessons. That's why I'd say the next book, while I'm not Christian, while I'm not, I'm not, I'm pretty, I'm pretty agnostic, I would say, I'm agnostic, but I'd say the Bible was a huge inspirational story for me growing up um, because the stories in there do have a lot of value. This is why I, I don't want to like step on toes because I have t- so many disagreements with Christianity, or with many of the different ways that's gone, but I do see the intrinsic value in those stories how far you are willing to interpret them or take them okay but i do see there's value in them so sometimes it's about your perception of it rather than what it is
2: absolutely always it's about your perception of it rather than what it is
4: i think sometimes perceptions can be a bit extreme and sometimes they can be very moderate and then that's also my perception so I, i don't know but i think that A lot of those stories had a lot of significant impact. I looked at them not as a believer of God, but like, why am I listening to this story for the next two hours? Like, what is the point of it? What is the lesson? Was it trying to teach me? Like, and I see that value today in Western media, like just Game of Thrones, like the social interactions. I have no idea what the end of that series meant. Like, what did it mean? (laughs) but Uh I know that there was a lesson in all the interactions and the deaths and how it took place. And they were, they were teaching a message. So all media has that benefit. But I think like looking at the Bible as a thing that could teach you rather than a religion, like gave me the ability to look at other stories and other movies and other like just different types of media as a lesson and something to learn from rather than an idea or a concept or someone else's. Like, So what can I take from that? Absolutely. So the Bible definitely started that. Transition as a child who believed it was the, the holy book to a young adult who was like, this is just a good book full of some crazy stories. Yeah. But like a lot of moral value has been given to people because of those stories. So, but why can't anything else do that? Why can't Star Trek teach me some moral value?
0: Absolutely. Why can't
4: Lord of the Rings teach me moral value? Why can't Game of Thrones teach me moral value? It it all exists. So I I think that's influential.
2: I've I've said it before on the podcast. I'll say it again. My favorite quote of all time is by Richard Bach. And it goes, I had to swim through my life like a baleen whale, taking in great flooding seawater mouthfuls of what other people wrote and thought and said tasting and keeping bits of knowing the size of plankton that fit what I wanted to believe Mm -hmm. And yeah I feel like that's the way to go through life try to get all the information you can anywhere all Mm -hmm. of the questions all of the answers and take on what fits you and it's great to do it from the bible it's great to do it from Star Trek it's great to do it from festival art
4: yeah and like People are always quick to classify some media as like that's bad media, that's something bad. And it's like, well, how do we know it's good if we don't look at what's bad? If you don't <laughs> look at everything, then well, what are we looking at? Do you at? mean
2: like evil, or do you mean just like a waste of time? Yeah. How do I know or something what? is
4: worth my time if I don't know it's a waste of time? Like I, and my dad, when I was growing up, constantly said like, my mom would be like, oh, this, why is he playing so many video games, or why is he watching that movie? It's just violent and stuff. And he's like. Yeah, but he's going to figure it out and he's also watching good stuff. So, like, yeah. why should we try to control what he knows instead of like letting him know everything? And then he's going to be able to pick. And we are there as facilitators and guiders to show what's the good thing. But don't try to stop him from doing it. That's okay. good. Like, if he takes interest in it, let it, but let him see that that has different value than something yeah. else. So, you got to filter everything to even have a filter
2: wise dad way to go dad yeah we were just say we were just having a very similar conversation yesterday about yeah, you know like if you have if you have kids to how, how do people pick and choose or mostly what we were really saying is like it's kind of crazy how you know how helicopter parents are especially when it comes to things like media of <laughs> uh, you know again my mom's pretty fucking cool and from a very young age i was into i was very happy and really into some dark ass art i mean like from age two i wanted i was really interested in like horror and like wanted to watch dark things and death and destruction and sadness and she was like you're a weird kid have fun like essentially, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's absolutely the great perspective
4: i've had some of these conversations with my girlfriend as well recently it's like, you're the teacher, you know, kids, you, you can do everything. And like, there's nothing to do. It's just guiding. <laughs> just,
2: yeah, it's just supporting.
4: Yeah, right. let them explore the world, but don't limit their knowledge. Just, yeah,
2: they're their own baleen whales. So yeah.
3: <laughs> I think that's, cause we are talking about, like, screen usage and, and, you know, especially with children, and then, like, you know, how do you limit that? And then,
0: you know, like, mm. like
3: is i think that there should be some sort of but my parents didn't really limit it for me i mean when it hit like a critical point they'd be like get the fuck outside you haven't been outside all day Mm -hmm. you know that was kind of like um but strangely enough like the only thing that my mom ever cared about me watching was the simpsons
2: oh right that's how this started really
3: Yeah. yeah that's how our conversation started it was like out of all things i mean i remember them taking me to see hannibal in the movie theaters and like what? walking out and like literally like another parent was like how could you? That was like
2: 98, right? And I was
3: like I mean it was an okay movie I liked the first one better like you know like yeah, like, yeah I was done <laughs> I was definitely young but like I liked scary movies but they didn't you know I liked scary movies more than I liked thrillers you know scary movies have gone a different direction recently than I think <laughs> uh, not a direction I like but you know how do you How do you? But I think the conclusion that we've come to is that you give you give the children, you know, your theoretical child, as many alternatives to choose from as well as the TV Mm -hmm. screen. You know, maybe first you nudge them towards the PBS, you nudge them towards the, but afterwards, you know, you like try to fill their life with more additional meaningful things that they can choose from, and then hopefully, to God, (laughs) that screen time is not as much of a problem because they're have so
4: many other engaging things to do that's, that's a, exactly the way to go about it and i've, I've done a lot of like research <laughs> you're a great parent because <laughs> i was trying I, as a teacher when i was studying i was trying to figure out like how do screens have an impact on kids today um and some studies show that if you try to limit screen time it becomes more precious and more valuable mm. so then it becomes a thing that you want like any forbidden fruit If you say that's forbidden, that's the thing you want the most. So like with kids, when you try to limit screen time, it actually increases desire where if just like how they, if you like let it go free, there's always going to be a drop off point. It might be really crazy and out of control at first, then there's always a drop off point. Just like when they legalize alcohol for younger, younger kids in many places in the world at that first two years, it is crazy. But then the, it always levels out because the understanding is there. This the the understanding to see other alternatives that are provided, and the value in them becomes more important than the thing that was limited and the thing that was kept away. But the creepiest thing for me, where I'm still concerned, is how it's changing our psychology in ways we don't understand. So, like one really scary example is babies and infants uh, when they're young previous generation before we had touch screens they always point for something like, I want that, I want that and now when kids point for something who've had access to a screen they do this this is the desire for interaction, this allows you to control or to touch or to move or to say I want he's, that
2: he's moving his finger slick. in a hook like fashion right yeah. now, like when you're touching the a screen, screen. Yeah. like yeah <laughs> So that's wild
4: yeah so that is- that's Infants, that's happening to infants, like how is that changing our basic psychology and understanding of the world? And how is, I you mean, know, one of the things I'm concerned about is attention. Like how the attention deficit is going down and down, and kids' attention span is shrinking, like, consistently through each generation.
3: I think that is a very valid concern. I feel like I'm not as worried as much as most people are about that i think that there's like sort of like a, a, a duality to that as well like we're just less satisfied with being something being mundane or boredom or and you know and there is there is this, you know there's this, there's another side of that as well because it's so cheap it's so
0: you know it it,
3: it cheapens the whole thing but i mean Imagine you have you have kids now that can like infants that can ask use a use a computer screen and ask. I mean that that's that's a whole other realm of knowledge that's being open to these children as well. I mean, yeah, there's going to be unintended consequences, and I don't think that we're doing it the best way that we are, or like possibly could be right now. But I think that ultimately technology will wind up being beneficial in the long run, and like not to say that there's not you know, we, but I think that. It might not be the problem. Other things might be the problem, like, you know, forcing kids to sit in an eight hour school day staring at a board, you know, maybe that's what's wrong. and It's not ADHD or ADD. Maybe it's just that they're now exposed to this whole other environment. And and that's so unbelievably boring that we can't expect them to pay attention to this conventional way of learning anymore. Yeah, there's a problem there. I'm just not so convinced that it's exactly what we think it
4: is. I definitely agree with you.
3: You, you seem to scoff at that.
2: I'm, no, I mostly agree with you. I just want to point out that the majority of you know adults, contemporaries who we know who are the most addicted to technology, social media, all of these things are the people doing the things that you're most afraid of, the people who are obsessed with Watching keeping up with the Kardashians and spending every moment on their phones, taking selfies, trying to imitate the Kardashians, following the Kardashians, just trying to put on whatever mask this is and show it to the world as frequently as possible and are uh, the that their whatever dopamine sent things <laughs> dopamine, dopamine, dopa- dopamine targets yeah are, are being are coming from increasingly more and more shallow things and the more shallow they get the more shallow they get like it is a it is definitely a a downward trend when you start going in that direction like
3: i mean i would say is it you know correlation or or what's the real cause there i mean i again going back to like you know what do you how do you allow people to express themselves what do you allow them to watch you know i i truly kind of believe that reality television in the west is like
2: and the east what are you talking about
3: and the east yeah yeah i mean it's like one of the worst things but there's something that drives people to crave (laughs) that to begin with and i think that's probably where we need to start looking at a solution for that not necessarily the the kardashians i think they're a symptom of a larger issue that could probably be addressed elsewhere
2: yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with the underlying principle, just saying that.
3: Doesn't help, though. I mean,
4: it's disgusting. <laughs> the underlying principle is education, and understanding.
3: Absolutely. And the nature of what education is. I mean, education should be engaging and inspiring, <coughs> not, not a chore, not something like that. Like, I mean, it's a privilege. Like, how do you get? It should be. Unfortunately, it's not. I mean, you know. How do you, how do you, how do you recreate the education system so that it is not something that's spitting out factory workers? It's something that's building mature, you know, both functional yeah, func- functional adults in every, every sense of the word, not just, you know, that's yeah. a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, I like that you touched on industrialized education, like. And that's that's one of the reasons I also came to Vietnam is because industrial education is very prominent here, and something is changing quite quickly. But it's actually changing quicker than it is in America. Somewhere who's totally abandoned the industrial like workforce, it's not, like shrinking in America. But we still apply industrialized education everywhere, and that's when I see like an industrial education teaches us to like get little dings like oh you've done a good job in this or you've stamped out or here's the bell or you've done that repetitive task over and over again really well but nobody's doing repetitive tasks anymore and where they what, are is it's social watching, media yeah well social everything media is
1: and
2: the Kardashians. Like All these no- notifications so it's everything you're saying it's and all these little dings this repetitive motion swipe up swipe left swipe right
4: it's targeting kids from an industrialized education system
2: yeah.
3: That's a really good point. And and imagine imagine how much could be changed by oh. Imagine. <laughs> imagine
2: all the people. Let's make it happen.
3: Bernie, 2020.
4: Yeah, I, I would
3: support that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! What life pra- what life practices do you do to keep yourself sane and balanced?
4: Uh, I make art every day. <laughs> <laughs> every single day if i don't i am not saying that i'm not balanced
2: are you also a fire spinner
4: yes yeah um i used to practice meditation a lot but uh three years ago when i first started doing fire spinning and flow arts i found that to heavily replace my meditation process interesting practice Um, because fire makes you focus
3: (laughs) yeah 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 there's a certain element of Flow to it that just is.
0: As... Mm-hmm. I mean, flows.
2: There's flow to art too, of course. I mean, Those, hand yeah. art. I mean, you know what I mean.
4: That's a whole nother subject. The idea of flow. Oh yeah, one oh, of my, my favorites.
2: favorite. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Are you are you two fire artists or flow artists in any way?
0: No, I
3: I, I dabble with some poi, but it's more of just a. I'm bored and I'm a little glowy John. But I can only do the one.
2: <laughs> oh, <got> so <laughs> it's a work in progress
4: <laughs> i just started poi a month ago so nice. i'm getting there
2: <laughs> it's fun it's it's a lot of fun <clears> we dance a lot not with fire on us though we're yeah, mm-hmm. really known as the dancing couple in pie so you know
0: mm, a big deal yeah
2: <laughs> people use us as our advertisement to get to get other people to come to their their place you know
4: that's a, good, that's a very good gig to have in Pi. <laughs> it's a good place to dance.
2: Yeah, is it is a good is. place to
1: dance.
4: It is. I think I've danced every time I've gone to Pi.
0: Oh, yeah. It's so, like the best thing to do. Yeah. If you don't dance, you got... then you're no friend of mine. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>
3: what is the most environmentally friendly thing that you do or that you would like others to do?
2: Say, and that you would like others to and. do. And. Mm. I'll take out or.
4: I try not to use plastic at all. I try really hard. Um, it started first because I love working with bamboo and using bamboo and natural materials. So then when I saw a bamboo toothbrush, I was like, "Oh, I'll buy the bamboo toothbrush. And then I saw a bamboo water bottle. And I bought the bamboo water bottle. And then I started collecting all these alternatives and they worked so much better and they were nicer. I was like, if I just focused a little bit harder, I could do this and not use any plastic. So I tried to stop using one-use plastics Woo. in my art as well and that's very hard because mm-hmm. zip ties are a very tempting thing mm-hmm. to use all the time <laughs> yeah but what
3: about multi-use plastics are those a little bit more
4: yes i i have a plastic tarp downstairs i've had for three years now nice. so i do use plastics but i use them forever I'm i try you. to yes
2: <laughs> responsible plastic use i like that
4: mm-hmm. and then if they start to get bad i turn them into art
2: nice. <laughs> nice
3: beautiful yeah in southeast asia i mean they give you a bag for the bag for the bag oh is, gosh
4: in <sighs> thailand in thailand that's so much worse than vietnam <laughs> yeah, but in yeah. vietnam it's still bad yeah
3: uh, hopefully it seems to be there's some some knowledge brewing
2: mm. uh, why do people do small talk
4: um, to get an information base of the person I think if you can engage in small talk that definitely means you're semi-human <coughs> so I think uh, small talk has the value in like first contact I mean if you meet aliens for the first time most of the conversation is probably going to be what we classify as small talk where are you from? <laughs> What's your name?
2: What's the weather like where you came from? Yeah.
4: What do you like to do? Yeah. What is your purpose? What is your function? What do you love to do? <laughs> Why are you here?
0: You have
2: This is not my definition <laughs> of small talk. No? No. What? You're having way better conversations than... Do you not like, remember what it was like in the US? Yeah, like, you know, what, what is you, your what purpose? Do you do? He, just, well, he just got so deep
0: like,
4: real quick. A, what do you do for work? Yeah, If, if I was asking rock. an alien, what is your purpose? Same, same, same as yeah. General same.
2: What? That's the most depressing thing you've ever said. What is your purpose? Is the same thing as what do you do for work?
4: When you're talking to an alien. Yeah. It's a general general. But well, yeah. they
2: were aliens to them. I got
4: the comparison. What do you? What do you love to do?
2: That's way better.
4: Why do you do what you love to do?
3: Are you here to kill us all?
2: Yeah.
4: <laughs> what is? What is your function?
2: What, what do you uh, think your is function your, is? What is your function? Nice to meet you. What, what's your function? Yeah,
4: what, what's your function? Uh, do you, uh, what's my function? Yeah. Make make art. Make yeah, everything.
2: What's your function? Oh, baby.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> right,
4: definitely, though, small talk in Southeast Asia. I bet you have the conversation over and over again. How long you been here? What are you doing here? Are you traveling from? Where are you going?
0: So it's, in a, high it's a lot more. Here.
2: How long are you going to be here? Because it's oh, such yeah. a transient town that it's like, it's it's one that we think is totally fair game at this point because we've been there for almost a year, and it's like, yeah, people here are here for two days. I just don't want to mostly invest in you too much. Yeah. We gonna hang out once, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it a little close to the vest.
4: Yeah, and that develops this, like, very strong filter on, like, how you interact with people. And I feel like sometimes it can be really numbing. Cause, like, sometimes I've broken out of that. And some of the people I spent two days with, like, ended up being amazing friends who came back eight times. And then sometimes I meet somebody, and I'm like, hey, like, you're here for one day. But then I see them again and again. But I'm just like, why, why, why? <laughs> Should I interact with you? Should I not interact with you? Yeah. How do, How do I filter this i have so much other stuff going on is this worth my time to put into exactly. or like should if i just have the time i should spend it it's such a hard it's such a hard thing here i think a lot of expats travel mm-hmm. struggle with transient transient populations totally it's a, both good i think it keeps us all on our feet yeah I
0: was
3: i think one of the cool things about experiencing a festival in thailand was how most the majority of people that you meet there were travelers or you know had Expans. experience traveling so the, the quality of conversation people just like kind of creating that ease between one another mm. was was in my opinion better than other festivals that i've been to yeah it was so because easy to make are, friends it's like what you them. have to do otherwise it gets so lonely yeah and, you know it's not clicky or it's not too clicky and yeah it was,
4: that's, that's one of the reasons I like Southeast Asia, because we're all kind of like, we're all kind of like those, like, we're in our little Western spaceships, and sometimes we break out, we venture out onto the alien planet we're on, but we're kind of in these tight communities where everyone knows each other. and yeah, like You have people coming and going, and they're there, but you get these really tight communities, and once you break down that, like, bit of small chat, you find some really amazing people. Because this part of the world does put pretty heavy filter on what type of people show up here and especially to different locations. Like the expat population you find in Bangkok is very different than the expat population you find in Vietnam or in the one in Hanoi is very different than the one you find in Saigon. And then the one in Chiang Mai, completely different than Bangkok. But all these environments have these like pretty heavy filters on who lives there long term. And so you get a very consistent type of person.
2: How would you characterize the main difference between Hanoi and Saigon people, expats?
4: So a lot of the expats in Hanoi are mostly English teachers. Um, They're younger from about 19 to 30. Um, So that's the the, most of the population here is people just starting their careers who are really like thriving, want to do what they want to do and do it full time and like push into their passion. And a lot of people in Hanoi spend a lot of time here monetizing their interest. Like you, most people here teach maybe 12 to 14 hours a week. Mm -hmm. Some people teach 18 hours a week. And then you have smaller part of the population is teaching 40 hours a week. But you still have a lot of this extra time and a lot of access to monetize your interest and to push your passions here. And the younger population, you have a lot of those type of people. So I'd say the population here is much stronger with that. But then if you go down to Saigon, it's a much more industrialized place. There's less English teachers and more businessmen, more people that are coming there for a year to do some kind of factory business or to set up some kind of enterprise or to invest in something. So you get an older age group in Saigon. So the majority of expats there, much more business oriented, are more solidified in their careers, um, more knowledgeable about their corner of study and what they want to do and what they are doing. So you get a very different, but there's still that Hanoi expat scene down there, but they're not nearly as prevalent because they're not the majority. So a lot of the businesses in Saigon don't focus towards the type of expat you find in Hanoi. A lot of the businesses here focus on generating community. You have places like Clickspace that are just like, just about generating community. And a lot of the bars and clubs around here really focus on the community here and do a lot of events. That's why like Quest did so well here because it like, united all these people really passionate about what they were doing but didn't have a ton of experience and gave them this outlet where they had a huge audience to show that experience that that passion and to start gaining that experience and quest really like gave people that stage and that outlet to do it so it was so sad when it like went away because that big stage for all the expats who are super passionate here just went away so i'm really excited to see if that comes back in a different way in hanoi I think in a few years, it definitely could, especially in the north of Vietnam. But also you got to change with how the country changes. And then Chiang Mai, like if you're in Chiang Mai, the population, there's a lot of expats who are like digital nomads who work on their computers or teach online, who create their own hours, who are much more flexible. But you have this really strong, like hippie community, creative community of people that also have a lot of free time on their hands create these really beautiful communities very similar to hanoi that's one of the reasons like quest festival and jai tep festival got along so well and most of the people work on jai tep also worked on quest and most of the people working on quest worked at jai tep because so communities were like very similar in their vibrations and their vibe nice. as they would say and then bangkok like, how would you describe a lot of the bangkok population
2: no idea <laughs> I've never, been. never been
4: very similar to Saigon I've a a lot of people who are architects or designers or working in businesses who are more solidified in their careers you have less people who are teaching but there is still a teaching population but the, the population there very is very solid they people know what they're doing they have more money yeah. they they go a little bit bigger with things because they spend a lot more on what they're doing and it's a in the communities there can be quite tight, tight, but also can be quite exclusive because they're like, I'm part of this group. because so We do this. And I'm part of this group. because so We do this. And they'll collaborate and crossbreed just like any city, but you have a but much more strict environment. Whereas Hanoi and Chiang Mai, it's like, explore your interests. Yeah. There is no barriers. There's no walls. There's no established market. There's no established clique or group of people. Where, but that's with all bigger cities same with new york If you go to new york it's a very hard environment like it's not a place to grow i find it's a really hard it's a place to struggle and learn in struggles i lived in new york a bit and that's exactly how i felt the whole time i was there and then baltimore
2: doing art or teaching
4: Just doing art and then and art everywhere <laughs> um I, I just had an internship there for a while but then like baltimore is this place where like it's a population for 3 million people that only has about 600,000 because after the economic collapse they just so many places got abandoned that leaves a lot of place to grow a lot of place to expand and for people to try out new things with less money and you have this bigger infusion of new ideas so that's one of the reasons I really wanted to move to Vietnam not because like I feel like that's changing where People aren't going to New York or to Paris or back in the day, like, that's the art scene or right. that's the San place to become successful. Yes. Yeah. Okay. People are right. now going to the markets that aren't established, the places that don't have barriers, okay. that have a lot of scaffolding.
2: Yeah, like, I mean, Detroit is now the main art scene and exactly. like the main growing one in America. And Detroit
4: has the same thing as Baltimore. Yeah. It was an industrial city that lost all its industry and it had a huge population that collapsed. Yeah. And now there's so much free housing, there's like tons of cheap housing, it's very easy to like start something. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that have free time to do it. So it's, and it's the cost of living is much more affordable. And, like Vietnam in like Southeast Asia is kind of like, I want to say the Detroit of the world, it sounds <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> the, part, you know, the positive uh, part. Yeah. Well, when I first, I read an article about Hanoi, um, two months before I was planning to move here, and it. The article described it as the new Paris of the world for art and culture because there's we just such it. a mix of it going on.
2: And literal French architecture yeah. and food. And- yeah, exactly. It's
4: <laughs> exactly. yeah. a
0: fascinating architectural place to walk around.
4: Yeah. yeah. You can lose that in the small houses, like some crazy ones. Look in the alley out here. There's some really crazy houses that are very hidden.
1: Hmm.
3: I really love like at least where we're staying. It was it was similar to, like it was like in Nepal where you like walking and like there's like this little courtyard off of like this crazy street and you duck down this alley and then there's this tiny courtyard with like different buildings that you can go into and it's so quiet when it's, like, you're like a block away from just craziness outside. It's like that in Paris, too. yeah. I love that. I think that's so. I don't know.
2: It yeah, feels it's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, if it weren't for all the honking, I'd be. I'd be. Uh. That's so weird. How, like, did you know Thailand really doesn't have a honking culture? I wonder yeah. why Vietnam does. It's it is I, by far the most overwhelming part to transition.
4: I think here it's just like I'm right here. Look at me. It's it's never here. Honking isn't about anger, or animosity, or it's just like saying I'm here. Be careful.
3: Right. God, it's so
2: jarring, jarring. Yeah. <laughs>
4: The so the highest rate of traffic fatalities in the world is really? is in is in Vietnam. Oh, in general, I've heard
2: yeah, Saigon
4: That's is Saigon's definitely worse. It's it's the traffic is
3: it's honestly like not weird. as bad as we thought. it was like I thought yeah, the way that people talk rumors. about Vietnam traffic
0: is
2: like and the, it's and the T-shirts the in Hanoi being like fucking. I survived Hanoi traffic. Like, like, and yeah. honestly,
3: the only difference between here and Chiang Mai, I mean, it's a little bit bigger of a city, so there's going but. Is the fucking hockey. <laughs> like, it's still yeah. just kind of crazy. It's a little bit more lawless, but the walking the streets a little different, too. You
4: gotta kind of yeah. go on faith with that one. It's just, you just confidently step forward and move slowly. Never, never run across a road in Hanoi or anywhere in Vietnam. That's the easiest way to get hit.
2: Yeah, that's what our, yeah. our Vietnamese tour guide the other day told us that. She said, put up the magic hand and never yeah. run. I like and to call it the queen it hand. <laughs> just,
4: just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wave your hand like the queen and walk slowly and confidently into the ocean. Yeah, God. Okay. But if you, if you go to Saigon, it is ten times worse than Hanoi. Hanoi is very tame compared to Saigon.
2: That's terrible. Are we, what? Are we going to Saigon? Oh, yeah, we have to visit my brother.
0: <laughs>
3: make it there. Well, I have one more question. If you recommend any, any festival that you've been to or would like to go to, what would it be?
0: Nice.
4: Hmm. Right now, at the top of my list, I'd have to say JITEP.
1: Really?
0: Aww.
4: Yeah. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Come <laughs> and, on out. And for two very specific reasons. The main one is because JITEP welcomes families and kids and. Mm-hmm. Like that makes it a very safe and amazing environment. Mm -hmm. And it's like the creates an environment that's just accepting of everyone. So everyone comes there with a very open, kind attitude and open to share and to teach and to educate because it is a place for all ages. So I love that about JITEP that is constantly welcoming families and spending a lot of its budget on the playgrounds and the activities for the kids, not just the partying for the adults. And second because they do turn off all the music except at one stage at midnight so at the end of the night everyone's in the same spot and it brings everyone together at this big beautiful single stage where everyone can watch the sunrise come come up
2: or they can sleep quietly and peacefully in their tents
4: where they can sleep quietly and peacefully in their tents yeah
2: that's awesome Any others (laughs) that might not already be going to?
4: (laughs) Looking for suggestions here. Um, Filipino Flow Fest is a really cool one that's been gaining a lot of steam in the last last two years. And they're really growing big. And they're heavy performance. And they're now becoming very music-focused. They just released a promo video recently. Um, I'm really hoping to get involved with them. But uh, generally, they look really good uh Gigi and Fe, uh, fred both went there um gg's in their advertisement nice. video but they look really nice and they have that same kind of like jay spirit about them
2: that sounds good all right cool right on. You, you should check out um own productions in new zealand that's our other favorite wow. i think yeah. I mean, it's really incredible it's uh th- it's hosted on a private uh, deer and peacock farm, like uh, an hour and a half north of Auckland. It's surrounded by trees, and then if you climb high enough on the mountain, you're like on the tip of a peninsula. So then you're surrounded by water, and it's uh, it's like two lakes where you. Can, like, it's just free just to like kayak or do whatever you, you feel use. like. I mean,
3: yeah, it was- is and like New Zealand, like there's nothing. There's not even sharp sticks. It turns out, like you just there's walk barefoot, barefoot
2: all throughout the entire country, no without, problem.
3: Without, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the most magical place in the world. I mean, and this festival was just so and, and the key aggressively
2: just good amazing. vibes.
4: Like, yeah, if you, get, if you get the opportunity, okay, yeah, we have to get that from you before you go. For sure. Yeah, yeah we're actually we're in my friend from New Zealand's room right <gasps> now. Uh-huh.
2: Can feel those Kiwi vibes. Yeah, Kiwi
4: vibes. yeah. Good people, they're very strong. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, weren't weren't you gonna impress me with your uh, really cool closer closer this, this I time? We're gonna
3: write a closer, so we've oh. we've, we've now made a tradition <laughs> to talk about how we never have a closer of.
2: And now some of our guests have stepped up to just like make one for us. So if you, yeah, just say like really amazing things about yourself. Well, tell everyone where to find and yeah. follow your Plung art in. and any other things you want to recommend in addition to festivals people should go to.
4: Um, well, first I want to thank you both for having me on the <laughs> podcast. It's <laughs> been a so really much. good conversation talking about some great topics. Um, You were a Uh,
2: wonderful guest. Thanks for coming on. And (laughs) thanks, Fred, for uh, making the connection.
4: Yeah. And I'd love to see both in Pi as well Um, and at JITEP this year. Hell yeah. I hope you come down early and come help out maybe some or get involved with a workshop or even generate some conversations like we just had. This was excellent and very welcome at JITEP.
2: Yeah.
0: I love that. It's a good idea.
2: We launched our podcast one or two weeks after JITEP. So we were doing like a lot of promoting while we were there. But uh, yeah, we would love to. Uh,
4: the home stage
2: would love you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We should do a live uh, podcast episode at home stage. That'd be great. Um, brilliant suggestion. Wait, what was I just gonna say? Oh, yeah. We would love to. You should. We'll, we'll show you some of our, our art when, when we shut off the microphones. We would love to collaborate with you, though.
4: please. Please. <laughs> Um, You can find my art at hollandcreate on Instagram or hollandcreate.com or just hollandcreate at Gmail or generally hollandcreate anywhere.
3: Nice. And as always, you can go to occasionallyinteresting.com and find all those links at the bottom. And you can no longer shop with our Amazon code because nobody bought anything through it.
2: (laughs) If you listen to last week's episode, I announced that you failed us all. You failed miserably, listeners. So thanks for that. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> That's cheery now. Thank you again
3: for coming on. It's
4: been a pleasure. Thank you very much.